Welcome to This Is My Story, where everyday women share their stories of struggles and setbacks that have shaped their lives. I'm your host, Melissa Touch. Award-winning entertainer Katie Deal has performed to sold-out houses across the U.S. and Canada. A proud Georgia-born artist, Katie is best known for her authentic country sound. She was the 2016 recipient of the Georgia Country Artist of the Year Award and is an honored member of the Atlanta Country Music Hall of Fame. As a recording artist and singer-songwriter, Katie has worked with top Nashville songwriters and artists. She has opened shows for country legends John Conley, Sammy Kershaw, Colin Ray, B.J. Thomas, and Country Family Reunion. Katie was honored to perform with the late country icon Loretta Lynn and is also a frequent guest vocalist with the Atlanta Pops Orchestra. As an actress, Katie has been featured in two major motion films and numerous commercials and touring productions. She has also produced her own theatrical concerts, which have toured internationally. As amazing as Katie's bio sounds, and as talented as she is, Katie has struggled with anxiety, depression, and self-doubt her entire life. The events leading up to August the 23rd, 2022, when she lost both her mom and her marriage within 24 hours of each other, have changed her. She credits therapy with saving her life many times and says, I believe with all my heart in sharing our struggles with each other. I choose publicly so that others know they are not alone. We all fight internal battles. Why not bring them to light and fight them together? Join me as Katie recounts the 24 hours that changed her life, the events that led up to it, and the lessons she has learned in the years since. A quick content warning before we jump in. This episode discusses sensitive topics, including domestic abuse and suicidal thoughts. Listener discretion is advised. If you find these subjects distressing, we recommend skipping this episode or listening with caution. Remember, your well-being is important and support is available. Please see our show notes for support links and hotline numbers. My name is Katie, and this is my story. This will seem so off topic of what we're going to talk about, but my 10-year-old John Hayden, I don't know if you've met him. I think so. He is super huge into presidents. And every time I've done a recording with somebody, he's asked me, what's their name? What's their story? And so I was telling him last night that I was going to record with you tonight. And he asked what your story was. And I just told him like very simple, like one line. And he said, Theodore Roosevelt lost his mother and his wife on the same day. And he wrote in his diary, the light in my life has gone out. And I was like, oh my gosh, I have to start with that. Oh, you, like that is just so profound. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Oh, that makes tears in my eyes. <laughs> I can relate. I don't remember. I meant to look up the date of when your mom died. August 23rd. So it has been a year now. So can you tell me about the events and the circumstances leading up to those 24 hours when you lost both your mom? And your marriage. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, my mother was sick for about five months, right, right at five months that we knew. My marriage started kind of being rocky during that time because the family came in and saw what was happening <laughs> uh, that I couldn't see. And so the 24 hours leading up to my mom's passing, I was supposed to have been in Iowa doing a show. And instead, I... I we knew it was coming soon. And so 
I postponed my show earlier that week and I sang my show to my mom that whole day and all the songs that she liked anyway and and a bunch of others. And I just held her hand and I sang to her all day long. And then when it came close to time, the whole family came in and, and joined me and we sent her off and I got to sing her all the way out. What was the last song you were singing? I think it was Unforgettable. That was one of her favorites. I just kept singing and just kept singing, kept singing anything that popped in my head. I know I sang Just a Closer Walk With Thee to her. We we sang a bunch of hymns. I was supposed to have done a Patsy Cline show in Iowa. And so I sang a lot of Patsy Cline tunes to her. I sang some, just, uh, you know, anything that came to my mind, I, I sang. <laughs> yeah, so uh, it was a beautiful devastating moment. I stayed there. You know, I I held it. I held it together till they wheeled her out. And then it was, and I couldn't. And, but I stayed there. I had been the night nurse while my dad was, was there with her side, you know, by her side every night. And I, my sisters and my brother were helping mostly during the day and sometimes at night, but usually I was the one that was, we, we converted her little office that was off the bedroom into a bedroom for, for some, for the person that was staying it overnight. So I got to where I would, you know, I would sleep just so I could see her if she moved. And we had, we had sensors if she tried to move or anything. So I, I didn't sleep much because <laughs> I was kind of watching her all night. But that night I stayed there with my dad. So he wasn't alone. And then the next morning I got up and I went next door to my house and told my then husband what had happened. I mean, I had texted him and told him that she had passed, but I didn't go back over there and he didn't come over. <laughs> he wasn't allowed really. He wasn't welcome there. And so I went back home and I told him what happened and he decided to pick a fight and talk about divorce. And I said, I, I've got a funeral to plan, so I can't do this right now and do whatever you want. I'm tired of convincing you that that's not what I want. And so I walked back over and few minutes later, he sent me a text message saying he wanted me to bring him the keys to the storage unit so he could get his stuff and he could move out and whatever. And so I, you know, text him back. (laughs) It's going to have to wait for a few hours because I'm quite literally in the middle of planning a funeral with my sister, trying to line up musicians to sing because we wanted a big event. You know, we were doing a celebration of life in addition to the funeral. So we were trying to do all of it at one time. And she'd already asked me to sing and demanded I sing. (laughs) So we were trying to do all of that. And my sister was handling all of the contacts and I'm answering messages from people, you know, you know how it is. And he continued to make it about him. And um, I walked back over to my house a couple hours later and he was upstairs in his room, essentially, because I wasn't even staying up there anymore, you know, hold up like he normally was. Um, in his own little world, he was on the phone and I, you know, was, he was very particular about when he was on the phone with anyone. He didn't want anybody eavesdropping. And so I, you know, knocked on the door in my own house, walked up and he's on the phone and then he throws the phone at me and I, I didn't know what was happening. So I picked the phone up and it's his therapist. And I said, do you want me to talk to him? So I, you know, answered the phone and he said, we've got a situation. He's got a knife in his hand. Oh no. Yeah. This is maybe, maybe 14 hours or so after my mom has passed, maybe 18, something like that. So I do what 
what you do when what I now know was in a narcissistic, abusive relationship, you make it okay. And uh, so I talked to the therapist. I had permission at that point to talk to him, had him on speaker. We're trying to communicate and I'm begging him just to, you know, I, I, in the course of a few hours, I managed to, I think, get five knives out of his hand, a belt away from him. Um, I hid, I grabbed the kitchen knives, locked them in my car. I mean, everything I could find that was possibly a weapon. And never once did I think about my safety. Never once did I, it, like, I was, I guess, in such shock to still that I was just in crisis mode. I think I handled it pretty well, pretty well, probably not very smart, uh, smart moves, but for my own sake. So he had never acted like this before? He had never gone that far. Now I had previous to this, I had checked myself into the hospital because I snapped. The pressure got me and um, he was constantly, you know, looking back, the story seems so different than it was at the time. You know, the story I was telling myself at the time. But, you know, I had a lot of pressure at work and and then my mom and really heated up when my mom got sick because my family started coming around and they started seeing stuff, like I said, that I couldn't see or admit. And and I, I, I didn't have the clarity to even understand what was happening. You know, everything was just so hot all the time. You know, everything was urgent and chaos and confusion that, you know. I just was trying to waking up and going to work and then coming home and taking care of my mom and letting my dogs out. And all that was just all I could do, you know? So, so anyway, uh, long story short, I, in June, um, my mom was diagnosed at the end of March and in June I hit my breaking point and I, my sister convinced me and, and it was instigated by an event of his, an outburst of his, um, you know, claiming that he was, he'd gone to the eye doctor and he was going blind and life was over. Oh, he was trying to one up your mom. Yeah. Yeah. It was constantly that battle between him and my mom and the attention. And I mean, I could only do so much, but you know, she's my mom, you know, and I, I see now. And I think if I had not been in that situation, I could have seen what my family saw, but I see now that like, that's not love. That's not partnership. That's not honoring and cherishing and and protecting. That's quite the opposite. Um, but I was still holding on to my vows because I'd already been married once before, you know. And so I was, and he had to. But I, you know, I was committed to this. I was, I meant it. It nearly killed me. And um, so in June, when he had, he'd made me late for an event at work because he was fighting with me that morning. I had been up all night with my mother. I was headed to the golf tournament. He stalled and caused a fight like he did every time I had a test at school when I was doing the MBA program. I ended up dropping out of the MBA program because of him or taking a break um, because of him, because it just was too much. Of course, it was my fault because I was trying to do something that wasn't for him, but it it was because I was the only one with a paycheck you know, and if I'd gotten my MBA, I would have gotten more money and I could have gotten a better position or I could have done, you know, instead of seeing it as taken away from him, it was, I saw it as it was enhancing our opportunities together. How is he, did he come to your events? Because I know, you know, 
what people don't know is that you're, I mean, they'll hear the intro yeah, about yeah. Your, with your bio, but you're amazing. <laughs> you're an amazing singer. And so I'm sure that you get lots of attention at your events. Um, Was he at those events or would he be like, no, I'm not going to those? Or how would he act around people who would want to come and say nice things to you? Um, <laughs> it depended on the person that was talking to me, um, usually, or where we were. Um, if it was a work event for Piedmont, he would either not show up at all, or he would come and he would be like a wallflower and frustrated that I couldn't leave. Like he tried to convince me one time to leave in the middle of one of our events, like homecoming or something to go get something to eat. And I was like, I can't leave. You don't understand. You know, so there was that. And he got mad at me about that. But as far as my shows go, pretty much everything I um, did while we were together, he, because he wasn't working, he was supposed to be working on my house, which he didn't finish the house my parents built for us. And the agreement was that he was going to take the money that from his house that he, that I helped, I paid mortgage, the mortgage on for over two years that he would, he flipped it. He was going to roll that money into our house and fix it up and finish it. He wanted, he wanted that as a gift to me. <laughs> Still not finished two years later. I'm hearing so many red flags. I, right. And Already. <laughs> it and I couldn't, I just couldn't. Even people at work were like, uh, cause nobody wants to say it. Nobody wants right. to say, uh, you know, that this doesn't sound good. I mean, bless Pam Fountain. She did a couple of times. She was like, I don't like this. And Terry Ellerby too. I don't, I don't feel good about this. And, but they wouldn't tell me what I, and it wouldn't have mattered if they had, you know, cause right. you had to be at a place where you saw it yourself. Yeah. yeah. And I had a big row with my family because of it too. You know, they didn't approach me well. They, they were they had good intentions, but oh my, they should have had some counseling before they did that. Uh, Cause they approached me 30 minutes after I got home from the hospital. Oh no. Uh, and told me that I basically gave me an ultimatum that I could either choose him or my family. Oh. I'm just now figuring out, like, I think I've been gaslit this whole time. And the, the crazy thing, and I know I'm jumping around all over the place, but the crazy thing is, is that he taught me all those terms. He taught me, he's the one who got me into therapy. Like he taught me all this stuff. I can definitely see it's not just red flags. He was laying out a red carpet for me, you know, <laughs> and I see it now. But at the time I thought he was trying to educate me about therapy, which is exactly what I was looking for. In my past relationship, I, I'm still very good friends with my first husband. He's a wonderful, wonderful person. I never felt like we could get deep enough, you know, like in conversation and, and, and really figure out what our kinks were as people. And like, that's something I needed. I needed growth and I wanted somebody that was going to grow with me. So I met this guy who tells me, oh yeah, I've done all this work because my, my family's extremely destructive and, and I'm, I'm estranged from them because it's not healthy for me. And these are healthy boundaries. And here's what you do. And here's what's gaslighting. And here's, this is called love bombing. And this is called this. And then see that person, that's a narcissist. And see, he taught me oh, all this wow. stuff. And then at one point he actually told me when I confronted him about something, he said, somebody who is trying to control, because I think one of my sisters said something about he's trying to control you. Could have been my mother. He said, somebody that's trying to control you wouldn't send you to therapy. Wouldn't, wouldn't encourage you to get help at therapy. 
And at the time, you're right. What are they talking about? They don't understand us, right? Looking back now, I can see, no, somebody who wants me to go to therapy so that then I tell you everything because you know me. I don't keep any secrets. I'll tell you everything we talked about so that you can then use it against me when it's convenient for you to use it against me and violate my trust without me even knowing you violated my trust. That's what somebody that's trying to control you does. And that's what he did. So going back to the traveling thing, I I was doing music on the side while I was working at Piedmont for the last several years through COVID. And this was basically the duration of my relationship. He supported me by insisting on going with me and always told me how much he was supporting me because he was traveling with me and giving up, you know, all of his time to travel with me. I'm paying for the flights. Uh, a lot of times he didn't like the hotels that were provided for us that were fine, decent hotels. I had to get different hotels for us because he, they were, they were not up to par. He has celiacs, which I also have a gluten allergy, but he has some paranoia about food, real control issues with food. As you can see, I've gained about 25 pounds since we uh, divorced <laughs> and um, I'm fine with that, <laughs> but, uh, but very controlling about all that. So we had to eat at you know, certain places with this kind of food. And, he, and if he couldn't get water from a filtered water bottle that was glass or stainless steel, he wouldn't drink for the whole day some out there stuff. I'm scrambling around like I've got a two-year-old trying to make sure that everything's good for him because don't want to get baby upset while I'm trying to manage a band of five people, deal with the presenter, deal with the venue, deal with the sound person, deal, you know, and then do my show for the next two and a half hours and then pack up and go right back to it or go right back to work. You know, I mean, it was insane. And so any profit that I made pretty much went straight out the door because I was handing it right over to him. And this is my bad judgment, obviously, of, well, I was gullible. I am not anymore. <laughs> There's something I like about myself that I've discovered through this whole thing. And it's a, it's a battle too, because it's what got me in trouble, <laughs> is that when somebody tells me something, I give them the benefit of the doubt, that that is the truth. And I don't want that to change about me. But I have to figure out how to make that not not put myself in a situation where I take people at their word and then I get into a situation because of it. You know, I need to I need to learn to be a little more guarded in my trust, which is funny because when I was a kid growing up in politics, I didn't trust anybody. Yes. Yeah, side note, Katie's dad was governor of Georgia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But before that, you know, when I was. Kid. Yeah. I mean, he ran for um, state Senate when I was one and a half. So my entire life, he was in, he was in the state Senate, then he was in the U S house and then he was governor. And so my entire life was politics. And, you know, I always assumed that people liked me because of him. And a lot of times I was right. So my trust. Or liked you because they were trying to get some get kind him. of favor mm -hmm. that would aligning themselves with your family and, would maybe yeah. get them. Yeah. And, and the funny thing is, is that most of the time I can see that. I can't quite see it when they don't do that. And so it's confusing. Like in this particular case, 
I told him off the bat, I was like, Hey, by the way, you should know who my family is. And he's like, yeah. And And I was like, Oh, you're not impressed. Good. Cool. (laughs) That's awesome. Great. We got a great starting point. However, I feel like that was a lie. I feel like that gave him clout, just like having a girlfriend who, or a wife who was a performer that gave him clout to stand there and act like he was somebody because I was working my butt off, you know, and it's taken a long time to see it. Cause I didn't, I didn't want to believe that I had hitched my wagon to somebody who didn't deserve me, but that's the truth. And this is a lesson I had to learn nearly killed me though. I have a friend with a similar experience who would probably say that it nearly killed her too. The stories, which are not mine to share, yeah. but um, just outrageous mm-hmm. stuff you would never dream of. Oh, I've forgotten more things than have than I remember about it because it's like I'll, I'll stumble across something, an old text message or something, or a memory of like a photo will pop up Google, Ugh. <laughs> figure out how to make them stop doing that. Like, remember four years ago? No, I don't want to remember yeah. four years ago. That's why I cut my hair. I cut it all off. Um, but uh, yeah, so then I'll go, oh, wait a minute. That was the day that this happened. And oh, I totally missed that, you know? Prior to your mom dying, had you started to come around to, okay, there's some red flags here? Or were you still like, you know, my family just, doesn't understand us. Well, so we got married in March of 21. The day before our wedding, my sister is helping me decorate our house that was not finished. And I wanted to just have our wedding in our house. You know, it was supposed to be finished, but it wasn't. And of course, not his fault, whatever, whatever. So she's helping decorate. She basically, I left her to decorate because he picked a fight with me that day. Like the biggest fight we'd ever had. And I was so devastated, not really understanding what was happening, chalking it up to just stress. I called my therapist in tear. I mean, an emergency call in tears. And she has since changed her tone with me. She Now she's just like, Katie, listen. <laughs> but, but then she was like, hey, you don't have to do this. You know, you, you know, this. And, and she was treading very lightly with me. And I appreciate that. But I know now what she was trying to tell me there. She sees the red flags and this isn't good and I don't have to go through with it. And so I did. He was thrilled. I wasn't really, you can look at the photos of my wedding. I'm, I'm kind of shocked. Like, I don't really know what just happened to me, you know, the fight and the everything. And then I married this person, but reeling still from what happened 24 hours before that. And did y'all go on a honeymoon? We, we did not. No. Okay. I remember I was working at the bookstore during this time and I think you came by or I saw you somewhere like it was all around that time. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, congratulations. And it was just like, you had just gotten married, like right. Like days before something. And it just, just like, didn't seem like you're just like, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> like yeah, any I, other day kind of thing. I think I, so I, I remember that just as being kind of like odd, like, huh? Yeah, it was odd. And, and I, I think I just didn't really know how to feel, you know, I was happy because this person wanted to share their life with me. But at the same time, I just seen a person I didn't know 
And I think it was a, a trick. I think it was a game to see how far he could push me. And, and I bit and I went and he won. I mean, I, that's all I can take from it now. But at the time I was like, is he going to act like this every time he's stressed? Well, if it's just stress, then okay. How do I mitigate stress? By protecting baby, by not letting him get upset, by getting him the right food and get him the right hotel and get him to, you know, so that's what I did for a good first, the first year wasn't like that, but a good three years, we were together for four and a half, good three years. I, I did that and it got progressively worse and progressively worse. And, you know, they say raising the bar, he kept moving the bar out of reach. But then when I would call him on it very, very carefully, he would deny it and gaslight me. And I'm gullible. So I'm like, okay. I mean, I am classic codependent, classic. It's something I will battle my entire life. (laughs) I am compassionate to a fault (laughs) and, um, always internalizing it, uh, you know, that I did something. And so, you know, I let him do that to me. I just didn't know I was letting him do that to me. I don't even know where he is, but if he ever hears this, he's, you know, I'm sure will bad mouth me for the rest of his life regardless, but we're not saying his name. We're not giving him that, uh, power. Oh yeah. No, it's, and I don't care. I don't care because I, this is the journey I had to go through to figure out what I was doing to allow people like that in my life. And it didn't stop with him. I mean, romantically it did, but I had another friend on the heels of this happening. I had a friend I had trusted for 30 years. I had known him since I was 16. Um, he needed some help because um, he was moving out of town and needed to move out of, his, uh, out of his apartment. I needed a handyman to help me fix some stuff at the house that had not been done. And I needed a friend that I could just talk to. And this was somebody that I had been a friend with like that forever. I had trusted him like an uncle, you know? So he moves into my house for a little while upstairs in the room that I wouldn't go into. And then he turns around and does basically the same thing. Not, you know, it it did get physically violent with my ex-husband. And I couldn't even admit that because he always somehow managed to turn it around to where it was my fault. And I had, I had done something because I slapped him one time really hard. And that resulted in my head in the floor of the barn almost hitting uh, an engine with my head. That was my fault. And I believed him. And, you know, you hear these stories about battered women defending the men who are, or whoever is beating them up. And you're like, how do you, how does that possibly, like, what is wrong with you? You know? And then I realized, wait, I mean, I had arguments with my brother about, he's like, you're, you're displaying battered wife syndrome. Cause he's a judge. He sees it all the time. He's like, you're displaying this. And I'm like, I'm not abused. I'm not abused. What are you talking about? Cause I thought I had instigated all this stuff, you know? And so again, sorry, I'm bouncing all over the place, but the, the, the memories flood back in and I'm like, Oh yeah, you need to know that. And you need to know that. But yeah, I mean, he, he, he loved to bait me, drop a bomb in the room as I would put it and walk away. Cause I would try to, no, no, I don't want to, I don't want to engage in this. I don't want to engage in this. And then you just do the one thing, just like siblings do, you know, just that one mm-hmm. thing that got me to talk and be vulnerable. And then 
boom, and walk away for me to, to deal with it myself and dysregulate my emotions. And, um, I'm an emotional person. So that is the trigger for me. And he would do that. And at that one time when I, I smacked him really hard, that's, that's what had happened. And I was afraid, uh, cause he'd stormed off and, you know, we live on the river. So I didn't know, I didn't know if he was suicidal. I didn't, I didn't know what kind of frame of mind he was in. He stormed off in the middle of the night, you know, and I searched for him for like an hour, could not find him. And finally, when I found him, I was so mad. I hit him. I mean, I smacked him and I own that. I shouldn't have done that. I was afraid. And the result was my head on the pavement, you know, and that was just the beginning. That was another test to see how much I was going to take, you know, and I didn't realize any of that until much later and a lot of therapy. (laughs) So when was the turning point? Was it right when, you know, when your mom died or what were you already like, I need to get out of this relationship before, Um, you know, leading up to that? I think I was on a hamster wheel. I think I, or, or a merry-go-round, probably a better analogy. I, I saw it and I'd be like, okay, I got to deal with this. I got to deal with this. I got to do this. Wait. Okay. Wait, uh, one more time around. Let's just, let's just give it a little more time. And then, nope, I got to, you know, and so I did that for a long time. And when I, when I went to the hospital, it was the lowest point of my life. And I didn't care. First of all, they over-medicated me. And so then I really didn't care about much, but I felt like I was a little more grounded and I ended up getting COVID from the hospital. <laughs> so that made things worse too. Cause I couldn't even go see my mother. I would go outside the window and wave to her and talk to her through the window for Aww. two weeks because I got it. And then somehow he got it, even though I wasn't even around him um, for those two weeks, but cause he was sulking upstairs because my family had said he's got to go because of events that had happened while I was gone. And they blamed him for, for me being in the hospital, which they're not wrong. <laughs> they're not exactly right, but they were not wrong. And, um, so they saw him as the problem. And of course they were in emotional heightened places too. So they were looking for a scapegoat at, at the same time. And the way that it was handled just wasn't great, but you know, i I've done my very best to forgive and forget all of that. Not forget it, but forgive how things were handled. I know it was with good intentions. My emotional reconciliation is a little slow. (laughs) My rational reconciliation is is there. But yeah, so I I think it had started before I'd noticed these things and I kind of logged them away. But I can't even say that the turning point was the day after my mom died either because I mean, I was kind of, I, I told her, I said, I'm, he's, he's gone. We're, we're done with him. So part of that was me telling her to reassure her because I needed to, because she, one of the last things she said to me was get a divorce because she held her tongue for so long. And then finally she was like, Katie, I'm dying, get a divorce. And you know, what do you say to that? (laughs) That's not a normal deathbed last words. No. And it's, I mean, I was really close with my mom. So that was hard to know that I disappointed her like that. Part of me telling her he's gone, he's, he's done was me telling her I'm, I'm promising I'm going to fix this. And she trusted me. So I guess in some ways that was the turning point of when I finally said that to her, 
I did mean it. I just didn't know when that was going to happen. You know, I had to get my courage up because I was afraid. I didn't realize how scared I was of him. I certainly wasn't scared that he was going to hurt me or take my life because everything was gone. But I just was, I was afraid of something. I still haven't figured that out yet, you know, because my life didn't mean anything to me at that point. And when my mom passed, you know, here I was, I I was just in shock, but also I was disgusted, you know, at at his attempt and also afraid that he was going to kill himself and I'm going to lose, I mean, exactly what happened. I'm going to lose my mom and my husband in the same day. And I'm glad that he didn't kill himself, but you know, here I am talking to, cause it, it turned out I had to call the sheriff. I thank God I had somebody in speed dial so I could message him and say, call the sheriff. I, everything's okay. I'm going to keep the therapist talking to him. You know, well, he figured out and the sheriff's knocked on the door. I told him not to knock on it, but I guess they have to. And so they, I told him to just come in. And uh, they knocked on the door. He ran. I'm trying to convince them not to shoot him because I know he's not armed because I just got everything away from him. But they don't know that, you know. And so, like, there was this huge ordeal, you know, hours after my mom's passed. And I'm still trying to protect him in that moment. And I continued to do that. I paid for him to go to facility. I mean, of course, he went to a facility for a three-day hold anyway. But then I paid for him to go to a facility to get help for a month. And that was not cheap and stayed in contact with him as much as I could. And it was during that time that my therapist was really like, it was her and a couple of other therapists actually that were just out of the goodness of their hearts. They were talking to me that were, that worked through the different systems when I would call to, you know, get information because he wouldn't even give me any information about him. You know, you know, I would call and, and they would offer some not a uh, therapy, but I've seen this before. You know, here's what other people have done. If you decide that you want to move forward with separation notice or divorce papers or whatever, we are here to facilitate if you need that, you know, that kind of thing. And I started thinking about it and I started talking to my therapist about it. And she was like, she said, I can't diagnose him because he's not my patient. She said, but you could probably guess that he's got a personality disorder. And if that's the case at his age, you're probably not going to fix this. So you can choose to deal with this and hope that he gets help or you can find a different way to live. (laughs) And I thought a long time about that and it, it was heartbreaking. And I finally filed for divorce while he was in the hospital and continued to help him after that. And then I think the final straw for me was that we had agreed on a settlement, which was not basically he got everything. I was out of debt. I'm in debt because I let him have whatever he wanted. Just I, I'll figure it out, you know, because I have a family system. This was me being compassionate for him. You know, he he didn't have anybody. That was this thing. Nobody cared about him. He was on his own. Well, I had at least even if they didn't understand me, I at least had somebody you know? And so I didn't fight him. Then he calls a lawyer and wants to fight me on a settlement he already signed where he got everything. And that I think was the final moment. What more like, could he get? Exactly. Point. Exactly. Like he, I think he wanted to come into the house and pick through, you know, I have no, idea. I don't even remember what it was. It was just like, 
are you kidding me? I mean, even the judge said, what are we here for? And I was like, I don't know. We already signed the thing, you know? And he was like, why don't you take five minutes and talk to their lawyers and y'all figure it out, you know? So we re-signed some stuff. But, but that was the point where I was just like, I can't do any more, you know? Still have compassion for this person. Still want the best for him. And I do. I, want, I hope that he gets help. But thank God I'm not in it anymore. Did you put a restraining order against him? I did not. He's not. He's not ever going to come back there. He's on to something else, I'm sure. I mean, I feel sorry for her. Women, listen up. Don't let this happen. You talk about your support system during that time. And you had said that, you know, you had a lot of grief, anxiety, and depression following all this. Mm -hmm. How is your support system helping you through that? Well, thank God for my work friends. They were big in this whole thing because my family at the time felt like they had turned on me. And, you know, by giving me an ultimatum between the two. And I, and I never expected that my family, I've, I've always been extremely close with my family. And even with infighting, <laughs> you know, I've, I've always trusted them. And my mom especially was my anchor. So I felt like I lost my family too. So I didn't really have anybody, but I had my therapist and I had my friends at work and I had other friends reach out to me that were just, you know, good people. I didn't, I didn't share a lot about it with a lot of people. I had that friend that I thought was, was my friend that I really trusted. And and for that, I am grateful that he was there a couple of weeks to really just help me think of other things and not talk about this all the time while, it, while I was ruminating about it. Medication did help me when I got the right dosage. I, I just finally just cut it down. I was like, this is too much. I can't do this. And um, so I found what was right for me. And that helped until I finally weaned myself off of it which folks don't do that unless you have a doctor's uh, approval. But I, I did because I was talking to someone and they wouldn't help me get down to the dosage I need at my psychiatrist. And um, so I just, I just did it myself, which was the right choice for me, but not obviously something we want to (laughs) condone. I had friends there that were the backbone when I couldn't, I couldn't see straight, you know, and sometimes it was just, and my therapist, amazing. She's amazing, amazing. Um, saved my life, absolutely. But, you know, my friends were there in the right ways to not judge me the way I felt from my family. So I couldn't really even talk to them. They were there to say, yeah, you know, it's okay. Take the time you need, you know. And they were shocked that I came right back into work right immediately um, after my mom died. And I was like, I just, I can't be there. You know, I can't, I can't be around this constantly. I need something to think about and focus on. And so work really helped me a lot. And my friends at work really helped me a lot. And I've, I've developed more friendships now too. And I, and I'm a little more cautious about the friendships that I make. I won't go into too much detail about the the friend that moved in, but you know, he, he basically, he was dealing with his own demons and brought them into my world and, and then turned it on me. And I was like, no, no, we're not doing this. You, you done still again, I'm learning. I'm, I'm on that merry-go-round trying to give him another chance to, to, you know, not, not act crazy and at inappropriate and, um, just kept happening. And I, and finally that was it. I was finally done. And so 
now, now I'm, I'm not, <laughs> I'm always going to be gullible, I think, uh, to a degree, but I'm at least a lot more cautious than I was about people's intentions. So you had alluded to on a Facebook post that you were suicidal at some point. Yeah, that's... Was that prior to your mom dying during the time that you checked yourself in the hospital or was that afterwards? Yeah. Um, it's something I've I've had ideation my whole life, pretty much. I, uh, you know, suffer from the whole idea that I'm not enough and that um, my only value is in what I do. And I think a lot of folks deal with that. And it's, you know, a, a core belief that I've tried to try to knock out. <laughs> and I know, like I said, rationally, I know that's not true. Emotionally, sometimes that feels like that's the only truth. And I think that's the battle is convincing ourselves that we are, that there are two parts of us, you know, in the, at least for me, my emotional side takes over sometimes and it cannot drive. <laughs> it, just, it, it always steers me into a ditch. My rational side, I'm learning how to communicate with that and trust that more. And that's, it's just something I'm always going to battle and I have to sit down. And I think that's what ther talk therapy in particular is so good for me in that way is that it talks to my rational side and then it makes it kind of take over a little more. I do ACT, which is acceptance and commitment therapy. That has worked so much better for me than cognitive behavioral therapy. Just FYI. It's just a lot more of what you're dealing with now and how you're going to approach it now and not necessarily spending so much time in the past of this is why I do these things more of, okay, I do these things. What am I going to do about it now? Cause I know that that's not the way I need to go, you know? And it, and you can do both, you know, I mean, you can dip back into the past. Sometimes it's helpful. I did EMDR, which was great. The rapid, the eye movement therapy. Um, that was interesting. I think there's a lot of, lot of ways to get that core belief of you're not good enough or whatever your core belief is, shake it up and, and, and dissect it. I think there are a lot of ways to get to that. I'm a big fan of that. Now I also, well, a little over five years ago, I, on my 39th birthday, I decided that I was going to stop drinking because it was the only thing I hadn't tried to battle my depression. And also, you know, to figure out if, I don't know, maybe I, maybe have a drinking problem because I like to drink and I like myself when I'm a little tipsy and I'm fun, you know, I'm a happy drunk. So I stopped drinking for five years. And then after all this stuff went, you know, kind of resolved a little bit after my, my ex-husband was done, I slowly kind of moderately drink now. And I can, because that wasn't my problem. My problem was coping. I still have to keep myself in check because I don't ever want to have a slippery slope or anything. But, but for me, that was, that was something that I was not going to let that control my life because I knew it wasn't about the thing. And it's not to me, and I think addiction is different for lots of folks, but sometimes it's about the thing. Sometimes it's about the reason you're doing the thing. And for me, it was the reason I was doing the thing. It was to make myself- It's a cope mechanism yeah, sometimes. Yeah. Like dopamine or whatever. And mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, gosh, I've learned a lot through all this. <laughs> and I, um, I've met a great guy now and he's like, night and day. And I know that I would have walked right past him if I had not had this experience. 
I know it. And I can't believe that I trust anybody again. I, I can't believe it. And I'm so proud of myself for doing that, you know, but I'm aware if I see any of those red flags with anybody, I'm going to run. <laughs> I'm going to close the door. So what advice would you give someone or what red flags should they be looking for? Like Gosh. not not as much like, you know, exact examples, but more like, you yeah. know, controlling, that kind of thing. What um I know I'm putting you on the spot no, there. No, it's okay. It's it's so hard with when they're covert and I mean it's just hard in general to read people sometimes. And I think it's different for everybody, but I think if you have a niggling voice in your head that keeps saying the same thing, there's something to that. There, there is. And you can convince yourself there's not, you know, if, if you are, you know, in a relationship and you are certain that they're cheating because you keep hearing this voice, I think they're, they're up to something. They're up to something. They're whatever, whatever it is. There's something to that. It could be that they aren't, but it could be that they are. Either way, you don't trust them. So get out. Those are the red flags I I feel now like of listening, trusting myself. And that's the problem that I've had. And that's what therapy helps me with too, is trusting that I know what's right for me. I don't need somebody else to tell me what's right for me. And I'm the youngest of four with pretty dominant personalities around me. So I like people telling me what to do. I don't like being the leader. I want to be, I want to be the sidekick, you know, and which is hilarious that I do my own show, but like, I, I rely a lot on the mus- musicians when I do stuff. I collaborate too much sometimes. And, but it's cause I like that. And I've always wanted a partnership when I get into a role where I'm, I'm following, it's not about my ego. It, it's, I want that. And that is dangerous for me because I will follow into a pit, obviously. Um, so I think that's that's something too is like know, knowing yourself and knowing that you can trust that voice that's telling you something that you don't want to hear. Maybe you should listen to it and and analyze it and see if that is if there is some truth to it, you know, because probably there is. <laughs> and I don't know if that's I believe in spirits and ghosts and you know heaven and all that. I don't know if it's our ancestors talking to us. I don't know if it's part of my psyche. I don't care. It could be Jesus himself. I don't care who it is. I just know I have to listen to it. You know, everybody talks about self-love all the time. And that was really hard for me to understand for a long time. I've got some Instagram posts of me being sarcastically self-loving because I was trying really hard and I was like, oh, this is stupid. So I found all these uh, photos of me from like headshots that I had taken, you know, that for for acting. And I cut them all up and I put them in my fridge and I put sarcastic sayings on them. Like, Oh, you're smoldering and all that, you know, it's like, (laughs) I couldn't be nice to myself. I just couldn't. And I could be sarcastic and funny, but I couldn't be nice. And that was not the right approach for me for self-love. And I think it was, it's this, it, it's listening to myself and trusting myself and having people that I know are going to tell me the truth, like my therapist, like a few select friends, they're going to call me out in, in a kind way. And they're going to say, Hey, (laughs) you need to trust yourself here because you thought this, 
revisit that and make your own decision. Don't look to somebody else for that. Well, I'm not going to give you the answer. You go figure it out and you can. And I think that's, that's the thing that I needed to learn about self-love was that it's not about pampering myself and meditating and taking time. Although there's value in all those things for me, that is not the answer for me. It is listening and trusting me. And that's been really hard because <laughs> I want somebody to tell me what to do <laughs> and make decisions for me. I want that. It's so much easier and also awful. Your classic baby of the family. <laughs> I, am. I mean, my mom told me what to do all the time and I would fight her, but I'd always do it always. So that that's been a, you know, that's been a big shock, but I'm not in a relationship like that now. And I'm with somebody who's very guarded about that and will not, will not tell me what to do because it's not his place. And I have to have friends like that too, because I know I'm susceptible. So I think just, you know, spending time, that's what I think is so valuable about therapy and spending time learning about yourself. That's what self-love is to me and can't go wrong with that. So would your mom be proud now? Oh yeah. Of where you've come in the last year. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. She, uh, I mean, she'd give me the what for about why it took me so long, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I know she's proud of me and, and I'm doing a show right now in, in Milwaukee where I'm every night I talk about my mom in the script. There's a friend of mine wrote the script based off of interviews with me and it's about the women of country music, but we, have a moment in there where we talk about this. And every, every night I, I get to remember why I do this and why I didn't give up. And, you know, I, on, on a Facebook post, I, I also mentioned in that same one, I think that the reason that I didn't ever go through it with it before when I was in the depths of despair was because I had compassion. Thank God you know, because I cared about my family and I cared about what they would think. And I put myself in that position of like the day after, you know, and I, I just could never do it because I cared about them. And then when all that kind of shattered, it was really hard to not go through with it. But I still had that compassion that they wouldn't understand, even if I didn't feel like they cared, which they do. Obviously they do. But at some point that almost wasn't enough anymore, which is why I checked myself into the hospital. And, um, because it felt like I was really like, it, I couldn't stop myself if I were alone for one more minute. And now when I, I still have moments like that, but now I see it from a different place. Now I see it of, I would not have just cheated myself or my family out of experiences with me, friends that already know me, I would have cheated this man that I have now met that I did not know before all this stuff happened. I would have cheated him out of what I think is probably the best thing that could ever happen. You know, he has a partner and not that I'm the best thing in the world, but I think we're the best thing for each other. And I could have stolen that from him. And I would never forgive myself if I did that. That's some powerful self-love there. Hmm. Yeah. For you to be able to say that now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, work in progress. <laughs> yeah. That's a ton of progress. <laughs> and I'm, I'm happy that you're getting a do-over and too. that you don't have to end, you know, with the last 
serious relationship you had being someone like him. Yeah. Well, and I was, I was prepared to just do this by myself if I couldn't trust anybody and God, my mom, somebody had other plans. So I'm not wasting one minute. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I had had no idea when I saw you post that on your Facebook. I was like, oh my gosh, I knew your mother had died, but mm-hmm. I didn't know the other stuff. Yeah. And <laughs> I was like, you know, we just, like you said, and like I, I, um, I think I said this in the trailer when I was promoting the podcast releasing, you know, we only want to share the shiny parts of our lives on social media and we just don't know what's happening. Yeah. Really. Uh, I'm glad yeah. that we got to talk about it. It's important to talk about. Me too. And I appreciate you asking me because, you know, I I really don't have anything to hide and I'm not embarrassed. And I, there's some there's a line that I say in the show that I've discovered that there's freedom in sorrow because when your heart is truly broken that you don't have anything to fear at all and you can be exactly who you are. And I feel like that's kind of my motto from now on, you know? I'm going to be exactly who I am. And you can love it. You can hate it. You can be indifferent. That's okay. Sometimes I feel all those things about myself too, (laughs) you know? Um, But I think that's the way to live is fearlessly. And I, I get it now. Thanks for joining us today on This Is My Story. If you or someone you know is struggling with the issues discussed today, remember that help is available. Reach out to local support services or consider visiting websites like thehotline.org or suicidepreventionlifeline.org for assistance. Links for domestic abuse and suicide prevention hotlines and websites can be found in today's show notes. This has been Katie's story. What's yours?